This is episode 14 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today we are discussing clinic operations and patient experience with Sanjeev Bhatia, a physiotherapist and advisor to clinic owners and rehab technology companies. Today's episode is part two of a special business series for health professionals and business owners in partnership with the Canadian Physiotherapy Association's Private Practice Division. Thank you for letting us interview you today. No problem. Can we start by having you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Sanjeev Bhatia. Originally, I was a physiotherapist, but practicing just for a small while, like less than a year, I decided to leave my clinical practice and move into business, which was a big decision at the time. There wasn't a lot of uh, physios in business. I was actually working in a clinic where we were fairly busy and we wanted to expand but we really didn't know how to do that. <laughs> the marketing, the recruitment, this is about 10, 15 years ago. So I have two brothers, uh, they were ahead of me um, in school. They were completing their MBAs at that time, this is about 10 years ago. So I decided to take the leap and go to business school myself. After that, in my co-op, I ended up working for Bell Canada for three years, which was a really great experience because uh, I found a really great mentor who kind of set my mentality in the business world. After three years working in tech with Bell, I joined uh, one of the largest clinic networks in Canada. At that time, we had like 60 or 70 clinics across Canada. And then um, by the time I left last year, which was about 10 years being there, we're at 133. The first few years at that role, I was responsible for building their practice management software, which is a really interesting job because it's less about the tech and more about understanding how people work. So front desk, office managers, middle managers, therapists, clinic directors, even executives. So you have to understand how all they all work so you can build the systems and processes around them to do their job and deliver care. My last five years there, I focused on private patient revenue across 133 clinics. And then I was lucky enough after I left there to join Scott Marcaccio at uh, MyoDetox for several months where I was a VP of operations. And that was a really great experience for me because I got to look behind the curtain, an up and coming clinic network that was essentially doing something no one else has done before on social media. And I was able to provide value by working with Scott and his team on the clinic operations and you know their scaling plan, business strategy, things like that. Uh, more recently, I've decided to kind of take the leap myself and uh, spend my time investing in people, ideas, and technology. So I meet a lot of clinic owners every week, a lot of people who want to start companies, start tech companies, and that's kind of where my passion and my focus is right now. So today we are talking about clinic operations. Okay. So how do you define clinic operations? That should be an easy question. <laughs> What I like to do when I work with other any company, whether it's uh, you have one clinic, you have plans to move to s- several clinics, or you're building a large network, is focus on the paradigm that structure dictates function. Okay, so that's kind of how I see clinic operations. It's putting in the structure in your business so you can function. A lot of times, I'll meet um, with a, a leadership team and an owner, and you can see they've jumped right to function. 
typical case is uh, I can go to any clinic Google business listing or, or Facebook page and you could see, you know, are the reviews replied to? Are people posting consistently on the Facebook page? If that's not happening, you could see how someone jumped right to function. They're like, oh, we need a Facebook page. So, okay, you start posting content. But after a while, they haven't defined whose role it is. Uh, what do you post? Uh, where do you get the content from? What's a protocol or procedure to reply to people? So eventually you can see the page, they just stop posting and the page dies. Why is it important to have all of this in place? It's important to have your operations in place, one, so you can function, as I mentioned, but two, every business is under a state of change. So your objectives change, your market could change, challenges, opportunity present itself. So the structure you put in place will allow you to be nimble so you can pivot, okay? So you can take advantage of opportunities or you can respond to challenges. But ultimately, you know, when you boil everything down, what you want to be able to do is put the structure in place so you can make proactive decision making. Okay, uh, a lot of times I'll work with a company where after three months, they'll look at their a set of data and they'll say, okay, this is what's happening in our company. They'll put together a committee to respond to that challenge and then they'll put together a plan. Uh, what we try to do with clinic operations is that you have a pulse of what's happening outside and inside your business in real time so you can respond to it. So you don't let challenges kind of build or perpetuate and you can take advantage of opportunities really quickly. How do you systematize different parts of the clinic? Like can all areas of the clinic work in that way? They should and they can work that way. So what I like to think of in a clinic is looking at patient experience, okay? And let's start very simply. Let's use the model that patient engagement has to turn into patient commitment to their treatment plan, and then patient commitment to a treatment plan is gonna end up in better outcomes, okay? Patient experience is a word that's used quite a bit now in our industry. What I consider patient experience is kind of like energy and physics, okay? So it comes in different forms. Just like energy, it could be chemical, it could be energy of motion, kinetic, potential, gravitational, energy of strings, and, and patient experience is no different. So let's take your marketing, okay? If you're doing digital marketing or, or your classical marketing like community outreach, you're building an experience online for someone to engage with, okay? So someone might see your material and it might resonate with them, and then they're gonna take that extra step. They're engaged now and they're gonna call you, okay? So what you wanna do in marketing, just measure the experience in your marketing. So that might be how many phone calls did your mar marketing sources generate? That could be a metric for judging or gauging patient experience online. When someone does call you or contact you, is your front desk answering the phone? Okay, they should be answering at above 90, 95% consistently and being able to book eight in every 10 new patients that call. But even those two metrics, answer rate and booking rate, they're a measure of a patient experience on the phone, right? If you do that right and the patient books with you, the next thing that happens is, is the assessment. So how do you measure patient experience at assessment? And this is where I spend a lot of my time with therapists is not on the clinical aspect of doing the assessment, 
but more how to build patient rapport at assessment. And patient rapport at assessment is very key because that is a critical step to somebody committing to their treatment plan, right? The therapist has to come across as confident as the expert, as a support system, but also has to be personable and has to build that rapport in 50, 60 minutes with somebody so they want to move into and commit to their treatment plan. And again, that's a patient experience area of the business that we should be measuring. So you may measure it by how many sessions did the therapist prescribe and how many did the patient book before they left that day. Now you have the patient moving into their actual treatment plan over several weeks. Again, you want that person to commit to those several weeks, so you have to measure it. You have to measure patient experience during that time. And for that, you might measure what's called patient visit average. What is the number of times somebody comes in for their sessions per assessment? So you'll see some therapists may have, on average, a patient comes in with you three or four times, where it should really be somewhere between seven to 10 from the research I see for someone completing their care plan, okay? So let's say that goes well and you measure patient experience through the care plan leading up to discharge. What happens when people are discharged from their treatment plan? And I work with owners to let them know that you may discharge someone from their treatment plan, but you don't discharge them from your business or your brand. So of course, after they've completed their course of care, um, you want to speak to them about maybe their lifestyle or prehab so the injury doesn't occur again. Or if they're doing something very specific like a sport, can you put them on a program for them to be successful? Like myself, I used to focus on like 80% training and 20% recovery. But as I grow older, it should be almost 40% recovery and 60% training, right? And again, how do you measure patient experience at discharge? Well, you'll, you'll just look, how many discharges did we do this week? And how many people moved into one of those lifestyle options? Say one out of 10 moved into a lifestyle option. Well, knowing that metric, you can then move the needle on it by working with your therapist, role-playing, providing them support, and maybe from one to 10 people taking advantage of a lifestyle option, you can get that to three, okay? After discharge, you'll kind of see that people who complete their course of care, they're more likely to refer to you. And again, people who are committed and complete their course of care get better outcomes, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. And someone with better outcomes is more likely to tell their doctor. They're more likely to give you a Google review. They're more likely to tell a friend or a family member. And then in this day and age, when you tell somebody, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to pick up their phone and they're going to check you out online and the whole process is going to start again. Okay. So when you think of clinic operations in that way, I truly believe there's about five to six key areas of your business that if you optimize, will run 90% of the business. Okay. So that's a long winded way of saying that's how you measure patient experience through the, through the life cycle. You said five to six key things. Is patient experience one of those? No, patient experience, again, is, is that common thread okay. that goes through all those five or okay. six things. So you want to be able to tap into it. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to measure it, right? Okay. And that way you can gauge where you need to focus your attention and uh, what areas of your business are leaking so you can close those leaks. So if I told you that your front desk team was answering 70% of the calls that come into a business, you could see there that that metric lets me know that I have an issue with patient experience because we should be picking up the phone at over 90%.
And that's just a quick way of measuring patient experience on the phone. With that, employee training would be critical to have things run smoothly and to get that great patient experience. So how do you make sure that that is all executed from organizational level? Uh, that's a good question. So I try and stay away from the word training. <laughs> but what I would start with is when I talk to an owner about their business, I first have to understand what category are you in? I've created four categories of a clinic. Type one clinic, your roles are established and documented. Okay, and a lot of times I'll meet with a clinic and the, and the team and they have job descriptions, which is more of an external tool, but they don't necessarily have role descriptions. And if they do, they're documented in some binder where no one can have access to them or see them, but that is a type one clinic. So you have your org structure in place, okay, with the roles established and documented. A type two clinic is a clinic where those roles follow a daily, weekly, and monthly checklist, okay? And again, a lot of clinics, I would say, have these, but they're in binders, they're in like paper form. But again, as I mentioned, your business is always changing. So the tasks on someone's daily, weekly, or monthly checklist may change. So those checklists have to be digital. They have to be dynamic. And when you do that, the great thing for an owner is you can be in Santorini in Greece and you can look up on your phone and see is your office manager doing their daily tasks, their weekly tasks. And if you need to add or remove tasks, you can do that easily when you digitize it. The great thing about that as well is that you create visibility among your team. So the front desk know where they start and stop then the office manager knows their role, the therapist, the clinic director. It's very transparent so the team can work together. A type three clinic is each of those roles has key performance indicators. Again, these are the metrics that help us gauge that patient experience for that role. For example, I meet a lot of clinics where they're looking at metrics, but they're looking at uh, outcome metrics, maybe assessments or revenue. And those metrics are the result of doing something else or not doing something else. So again, let's use something simple as like uh, the front desk phone performance. When I work with my front desk, I keep them accountable just for those two metrics, answer rates and booking rates. Those are performance indicators as well as give me, a, again, a pulse or gauge of the clinic uh, patient experience on the phone. And I can influence those metrics through training and development of my team. Most clinics have around one or type one or two. I work with owners and, and leaders of business to move into a type three. But a type four clinic is very rare. It's almost like a unicorn. It's <laughs> trying to get people to go there. But a type four clinic is the epitome of having a very well-trained team. And a type four clinic is basically that role can look at a metric, let's use again, answer rates, and they can interpret them and make proactive decisions, okay? And that's where most leaders should be spending their time creating their own leaders. Though someone can look, oh, the answer rate dropped this morning to 72%. Okay, I know what to do to jump in, support my front desk team, so that the same challenges are not experienced in the afternoon. Okay, so in order to have someone be able to take proactive decision making, you have to work with them, 
develop them and uh, unfortunately using the word training in that case. But in each organization, what I would say is don't jump levels. So if you haven't done type one, if you're not a type one, you don't have your roles, don't jump to type three and try and put metrics in, okay? Get type one done, optimize, jump to type two, complete that step, move to step three, and then step four, okay? And if you do that, you'll have the structure you need to be nimble and perform. You'll have a team that is getting metrics and they know what to interpret them and make proactive decision making. But ultimately for the business owner, it allows them to unplug from the business, okay? So the business can run and they can work on other aspects of the business or take that vacation they've always wanted to take, but the business should be able to run independently of the owner. You spoke about patient experience and with that part of it is everything that they see when they come into the clinic, part of it is the treatment that they are receiving as well. Mm -hmm. So for bigger clinics, sometimes there's a lot of differences between the providers and the way that they are treating. So is there a way to reduce those inconsistencies between providers? Well, in terms of delivering your clinical care, there could be a lot of variety. As a therapist myself, I might have been trained in a specific technique, and a, a, my colleague might be looking at the same case and treating it in a different way. So you want to actually have that kind of variety and look at um, kind of what outcomes come from that. But in terms of patient experience, you shouldn't be standardizing it, right? So again, if you looked at those five or six areas of the business that we want to optimize in terms of patient experience, that will take care of 90% of the business, okay? That's something you can standardize, right? Teaching your therapist and your clinical team how to develop rapport with somebody during the assessment, that can be standardized. There might be nuances in the way someone delivers it. Everybody has to find their own style. But the concept that you have to get someone's trust, have them like you, have them believe that you can help them and develop that rapport so they commit to their care plan, that is something that you can make consistent in your business, as well as different other areas when you talk about patient experience. Okay. So you would systematize the patient experience, but not how the individual therapist treats? Yeah, it's more to understand the concept of what we're doing, right? And that's part of the culture of a clinic. So we're talking a lot today about the structure of a business, the roles, the metrics, but underlying that is your culture. You know, that can be explained in a lot of different ways, culture, but what I look to do is operationalize culture. That it's clear to every role, every person in your business, what the vision of the company, what the impact is to the customer or the patient and how do you operationalize that so it drives that structure and those processes that you put in place. Ultimately, culture means speed, right? It doesn't matter how much structure you put in your business, the metrics, if you don't have buy-in from your team, you can't make change. And you see that in the industry happening in a lot of different ways. You know, if you're running one or two clinics, it's a lot easier to operationalize your culture, okay? As you start to scale, it becomes very difficult to standardize culture, operationalize it. I worked for a large network of clinics where the strategy was acquire. So you're acquiring clinics in different communities, cities, provinces. And when you do that, it could have a very negative impact on culture because you're merging companies. 
the emerging roles, your emerging technologies, the way processes, culture, and you almost create this monster's ink of a company where you can't pivot. So something as simple as trying to do Google business reviews, because the culture, there's so much diversity to it, you know, same with technology and the roles, it's very hard to implement change. In your opinion, what separates a bad clinic from a good clinic or a good clinic from a great clinic? It would be hard to define what a, a bad clinic or a good <laughs> clinic is, but if I could rephrase your question, I would say, what defines the progression of a clinic? It's change over time. And I truly believe that starts with your structure because again, you need that structure and they'd be able to function. The second item I would add is your priorities. So as a business owner, you're going to have a lot of like shiny diamonds coming your way. There's going to be a lot of fires to put out. So prioritizing what you need to do, having a very high respect for project management is key, and then aligning your priorities. Okay. So you have the structure, you put in project management, and you're aligning your priorities. For example, if you're working on marketing, and a lot of clinics are, they're putting a lot of time and effort into classical marketing and digital marketing. But if you haven't optimized your phone performance, then the two are not aligned. I would say marketing and front desk phone performance are like space and time. They're like linked together. You can't have one without the other. So if you're spending a lot of time on marketing and it's generating all these phone calls, but your front desk is not picking them up, or if they are picking them up, but they don't have the skills to offer a great experience on the phone and close a booking, then the two things are not aligned, right? So rather than say go from a bad clinic to good clinic, I would say it's more of a progression. How do you move from small to grow, right? And I would say it's about structure, project management, and alignment of your priorities. What are some top mistakes that you see business owners make? Well, I can tell you the mistakes that I've made. <laughs> that's, uh, that maybe that's easier. You know, the structure stuff I learned because in my career, I was in a role and I would say my experiences in business, there wasn't a lot of structure. So I would wake up every day and have anxiety. Like 100 emails came in, I got to respond to them. People are calling me. I want to work on this, but like I have to put this fire out. So. I think what I've learned is project management is key. Like execution is key. You can give someone all the tactics, all the strategies. You can even give them the processes, the training material, get team buy-in. But if you can't execute, you can't deliver, then you've dropped the ball. So what I've learned is um, execution is everything. And for that, again, you need the structure, you need project management, those are two key items to execute. Of course, you need to be working with your team too. Why is it important for the clinic owner to understand about all the clinic operations? Well, the clinic owner is the captain of the company. Okay, so ultimately everything stops with that person. And they have to spend their time not working in the business, treating. Typically, I see a lot of owners who are treating, they might treat for seven, eight hours a day, then they'll spend an hour or two on their business, and then they have to go home and get some quality time in. So in terms of an owner, what they need to do is put the structure in place 
so they can unplug from the business and have it run. Okay, but in order to do that, you've got to put the right people in the right roles, have that structure in place, put those key metrics that help you gauge patient experience, and then work more building leaders and developing your team so they can be independent without you. And ultimately that will allow the business to run. Every company I've gone into, whether it's one clinic, it's several clinics, or it's a large network, everything is about creating a leadership and learning organization. So as an owner, that should be your, your two focus. Are my staff learning? And are they becoming leaders in their role? So that I don't have to respond to everything, right? They have the structure, they have the metrics to gauge what's happening. And then again, that type four clinic, they have the skills, the development to make proactive decisions without running to the owner and asking, is this okay, should I do this? Is this the right way to do things? They can do it on their own, right? And do it well. So for someone who wants to branch out into owning a business, how do they then transition to that business owner role as they grow? So if you're a therapist now and uh, you've been working for a while treating and uh, you want to become a business owner, start with mentorship. Okay, so find someone who's walked the path already and outright ask them that if you can learn from them and they would be your mentor. Okay. So that's just one of the steps. I would say the second step is there's a wealth of information available to you, right? You can go online, a lot of great resources, and you should be able to pull from that and start forming a structure on how the business would run, okay? So mentorship, your own research into how a business runs and what you will need. And then the third part is you can't do it alone. You have to be building a team. So once you understand what roles you need, you have to find people that will believe in your vision, that want to be part of your business, and building that leadership team is, is key. And I know that you act as a business consultant now, so what are the most important things that you think you need to have in place when starting a clinic? It's interesting, I wouldn't say business consultant, but I would say I like investing my time into people, technology, and ideas. So when starting a business, I immediately look for distractions in the person's life. So I do meet a lot of people who want to start a business, but they're working right now, or they just had a, a kid, or they're just getting married, or they bought a house. When you're starting a business, it's almost like all-consuming, right? So it's a lot of long hours, a lot of stress, you have ups and downs. So what I want to do with a potential owner is provide clarity. And my value is to share my experience with them and my insights with them so they have a clearer picture of what they're about to undertake. Them knowing that and making the decision at that time with a very clear picture, then we can move into the how. The other thing I would say to somebody is you have to have the personality for it. Like, I don't have the personality for it. <laughs> I had to be mentored. Someone had to teach me what a clear picture is of being an entrepreneur because I was in corporate for so long, right? Even though in corporate, I did feel like I was running a small business inside a large organization. But personality is key. 
having that clarity of what you're walking into. So if you can get that, that would be a big win. And then planning the how. And then is a great base. And as I said before, after that, it's just about execution. You spoke about working for larger corporations and smaller businesses. Do you think that smaller clinics will have a harder time attracting new business with all of the larger companies that are expanding? Actually, I think the opposite. Uh, you know, I've heard this talk by, I think it was Jack Ma. He's basically saying that with technology the way it moves, it's actually empowering the small business owner and hampering the large organizations. So a large clinic network and large organization, they're not as nimble and they can't pivot as quickly as a, as a small business, right? But now a small business and community, you can put in the technologies, you can put in the structure, you have more of a pulse into your culture and that will attract the people you want in your business, whether that's a front desk or a therapist. However, my colleague says this all the time, is you should be building your bench all the time. So in a large company, they might look at recruiting as something you do periodically or when there's a need. In a small business, what we work with the owner on and the leadership team is that you should always be building your bench. And it's never more true than in our industry where you have the law of supply and demand, you have a low supply of therapists, and you have a high demand for service. So when you're working in a clinic, if you haven't built your bench and a therapist moves on, then you go into this like recruitment and hiring stage. But if you have built your bench and you have five to 10 people in your network that you can just call and say, hey, can you come work for me? And you've maintained that relationship over several months, it reduces any risk for you in your business. You spoke about technology. What role do you think that technology will play in the future? Well, technology always plays a role, past, present, and future. <laughs> so it's that common thread that is happening all the time. In the rehab industry, I feel like our technology is just starting to gain momentum. For a lot of years, you had technology focused on practice management software, so EMRs. I worked on one for several years. Very powerful in terms of helping you run your business with the billing, the payroll, the scheduling, reporting, things like that. But now in our industry, you have telemedicine or telerehab. You have online clinical programming. You have technology can, that can help you schedule a therapist at your home, exercise prescription software. There's just a more of a diversity of technology available to you. Technology is never really the challenge. I mean, like you can build technology fairly, I wouldn't say easily, but it's being built all the time. The trick with technology is having people use it. <laughs> so having the technology is 50% of the equation. The other 50% is getting your team to buy into using it and making it part of the DNA of your clinic. That's always the trick. And I think for technology companies, that's where they struggle, right? Having people use their technology in the way it was meant to be used. I've heard this saying before where you have a company that builds like a Ferrari but people drive it like a Corolla. So they only use like 10% of what you've built. So having your users buy into that, the technology and use it is the challenge. But I think we're just getting started in our rehab industry in terms of the technology that will become available. 
From a business perspective, where do you see the future of the therapy profession going? From a business perspective, you see a lot of consolidation on the mar in the market. So you have a few large networks that are buying up clinics, acquiring clinics, moving them onto their network. I don't think that's going to stop. So you have an interesting dynamic there, what's happening between your community clinic and someone that comes in and has a large network. Uh, the second thing I see is a lot of progression in our industry is coming from patients themselves. So you have patients now who are developing technologies like uh, DashMD, right? Corey and Zach, that came from a patient experience. Okay, you also have therapists who are building their own technologies because they work with patients. Like Maggie is a therapist and she is co-founder of Embodia, right? Online clinical programming. So when I look at the future of rehab, I look at the dynamic between the community-based clinics or the local clinics and large networks. I look at technologies coming from patients themselves and therapists. And I also, kind of as a third pathway, I see a lot of rehab moving towards the home. Okay, so just a matter of time until someone brings these siloed technologies into one platform where someone can um, receive treatment at home. So you'll have a platform that does tele-rehab, the same portal where you can get your online clinical programming from. You can have a therapist come to your home, and then you also have maybe have a digital health concierge that helps you manage your health. And with all these advances in technology and everything, how can current clinic owners keep up with these changes? That's a very good question. I think what's happening, not just in rehab, but what I'm seeing in the world is that with the proliferation of technology comes a proliferation of content. So you have a tsunami of content coming at people now. And what you need to do is set your filters. So you have to, if you're using YouTube or your Instagram or Facebook or a website, it's up to the individual now to set their filters and decide what content comes to them, okay? Before in history, what used to happen is the large media outlets are the ones that would send the content to you. There was only like, say, five or seven news outlets. So they were dictating what you should be watching. But now you can experience content in a lot of different forms. But you have to be setting your filters so you get the content you want. And for clinic owners, that's what you should be doing. You should be going out there looking for the content you need to run your business, signing up for their blog or following their channel and have that content come to you, okay? That will save you a lot of time and you won't be out there searching as much. Many businesses rely on patients having benefits and insurance coverage for treatment. Do you see any trends towards declining insurance coverage? Like, I know the U.S. is dealing with this problem now. Do you mm -hmm. think Canada is going to go that same way? Benefits are just a natural part of working. So you might have $500 in physio or $500 in massage or acupuncture. And what I think is the actual healthcare system and that framework has made people think that I only have $500 to spend on physiotherapy on my health, okay? That style is kind of evolving towards what would be considered like a health spending account or a lifestyle spending account, where instead of buckets into each service, you might get a large or some of money 
say $2,000, and it's up to you to spend it on your health as you see fit. It might be a gym membership or golf clubs or physio or Cairo, but it'll be up to the individual on how they allocate those funds for their health. You see a company like League making that easy through their app to be able to manage your digital health wallet. But ultimately, it's a therapist developing rapport with the patient that will overcome any ceilings in funding. So when I work with therapists uh, and we're working on building patient rapport and assessment, yes, a, a patient might say, I only have $500, right? But that's your opportunity to have them buy into their treatment plan and let them know that that money won't cover the care they need and they will have to invest not only their money, but their time and effort to get back to health. Okay, so it's the therapist that is the leader to overcome any concerns about price or coverage. And you see that a lot in the US, even clinics that are in network, moving towards a cash-based PT model where developing a rapport with a patient and getting them to commit to their plan of care will overcome any limitations in funding. And what challenges do you see for the rehab profession as a whole? I think the biggest challenge in the rehab profession, I would say physiotherapy profession, because that's like where I play, is uh, service confusion. So what I'm seeing out there is the everyday person may know. You ask them what massage is, they know, oh, it's someone who's going to work with my muscles. You ask somebody what Cairo is, they'll know a little bit about what it means to be adjusted. Acupuncture is very clear, needles, okay? But when you ask somebody about physiotherapy, you might get several different answers, okay? And what we want to try and do is provide more clarity on what physiotherapy is, what it can do, and that has to come through a coordinator effort, through people like myself, the association, so the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, which, you know, they ran a campaign recently about educating people on physiotherapy. Clinic owners play a key role in that. Any vendors like uh, rehab uh, product companies or tech companies. So there has to be somewhat of a coordinated effort about all those stakeholders to educate the everyday person on what physiotherapy is and what it can do for them. Because I believe in the other disciplines, it's very clear. So service confusion is somewhere where I think we can make a lot of gain in our profession. And where can people find out more about you? I'm not too big on social media. I understand the power of it, but I understand the flip side of that coin as well. <laughs> but I would say that you can get a hold of me through LinkedIn is probably the best way. Find me on LinkedIn. But hopefully you'll hear about me through a friend. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store. And for more great business content for rehab professionals, visit cpaprivatepractice.ca.